we are progressing on through the book of Luke. And before I get into it, I'll just give you a note about the preaching schedule. The plan now is to finish Luke 1 through 3 in the next two weeks. One today, and then we'll do the second half of it next week, including the genealogy. Then I plan to give you two sermons from the wisdom literature as kind of a break from series. And then we will go back to the book of Genesis together to finish it out with the story of Joseph. Uh, looking very much forward to that. If you are bringing different books with you based on that, you'll need to know that in the future. You'll find that in the emails as well. We look today at the beginning of Luke 3, and John the Baptist is going to finally start preaching. Now, we have been anticipating him for a long time. An angel said he would come. And then he was born, and his father said that he would turn the hearts of the people back to God and make them ready for God. And long before that, Isaiah and other prophets predicted that this prophet would come in the spirit and power of Elijah to call the people back to him. So we're eager to see what this is like. We're going to see what it looks like this morning. What it's going to do for us is show us what it looks like when the Lord does a real work in our hearts and we convert from walking in darkness to walking in the light. What does it mean to turn and follow Jesus? You might ask it, what does real repentance look like? What does it look like to become a Christian might be how you would ask it. Some of us have called ourselves Christians for a long time, and it helps us to look back and see the Bible's description of true conversion. So we can ask, okay, is that what happened to me? Is that what the Lord did in me so many years ago? Lest we get all the way to the end and stand before judgment and find out we never actually came to Christ. We had deceived ourselves. It helps us check and ensure that we really are following Jesus. Helps us understand some loved ones in our lives whose lives are not living up to the testimony of Jesus that they either once bore or they bear now. And for those of you who are interested in following Jesus but haven't come to him yet, that gives you a chance to look and say, okay, here's what I'm in for if I come to him. Right? He says, count the cost before you come to me. Here's a little bit of what it would be like if you came to him. The setup is this. John has been, as I said a moment ago, predicted for a long time. Because the Lord was going to come, and the Lord's anointed one was about to come. And the people had been trained through a long history that they had experienced and heard about, that when the Lord comes, or when the Lord sends his anointed one, he does three things every time. He, he judges his enemies, he delivers his people, and he amazes everybody. So, there's a great division that comes whenever the anointed one rises to the throne or the Lord comes himself. All right, the, the true and the untrue, you might say, are separated. One judged, one delivered, and everybody says, wow, that, that was something. That's what happened in the Exodus, right? The people were brought out. There's the separation. They're delivered. The enemies are judged. And you read it and you say, wow, that was incredible. Well, it's what happens when the judges rose to power. It's what happened when the kings rose to power. And so they're used to this pattern. They know the Lord is coming. The Lord's anointed one is coming. And so we expect he is going to separate the wheat from the chaff. He is going to judge the chaff. He's going to rescue the wheat. And we want to be ready for this. That's the cloud that's hanging over John's preaching. They're expecting that. So they come out thinking that they're on the right side of that equation right? I mean, we're Israel, right? We're the people of God, so we're on the good side, right? So there's a man out in the desert who says we've got to be baptized to be ready, so I guess we'll go do that. We'll be baptized, and we'll be ready when he comes. And John has a surprise for them, and that's what we're going to read today. Luke 3, beginning in verse 1. 
In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate being governor of Judea, Herod being the tetrarch of Galilee, his brother Philip, tetrarch of the region of Iturea and Trachosis, and Lysanias, tetrarch of Abilene, during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. And he went into all the region around the Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. As it was written in the book of the words of Isaiah, the prophet, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Every valley shall be filled. Every mountain and hill shall be made low. And the crooked shall become straight and the rough places shall become level ways and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. He said, therefore, to the crowds that came out to be baptized by him, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance, and do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father, for I tell you, God is able to raise up from these stones children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees, and every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. And the crowds asked him, what then shall we do? And he answered to them, whoever has two tunics is to share with him who has none, and whoever has food is to do likewise. Tax collectors also came to be baptized, and they said to him, teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, collect no more than you're authorized to do. Soldiers also asked him, and we, what shall we do? And he said to them, do not extort money from anyone by threats or by false accusation, and be content with your wages. As the people were in expectation, and all were questioning in their hearts concerning John, whether he might be the Christ, John answered them all, saying, I baptize you with water, But he who is mightier than I is coming, the straps of whose sandals I'm not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear the threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. So with many other exhortations, he preached good news to the people. But Herod the Tetrarch, who had been reproved by him for Herodias, his brother's wife, and for all the evil things that he had done, added this to them all. He locked up John in prison. The words of the Lord. Amen. So as I told you a moment ago, there's a a cloud hanging over John's preaching. You can sense the boldness, the eye-opening nature of his message. The people have heard that the Lord is coming. Prepare the way. There's a man out in the desert sent by God to prepare us for the Lord. And they know that when the Lord comes, when this anointed Christ, when this Messiah comes, there will be a great separation. And the people of God will be separated from the enemies of God. The people of God rescued. The enemies of God judged. And they come out thinking they're on the right side of that equation. Now, they come out with an understanding of this, so John doesn't say it out of the gates, but he does say it later in verse 14. I'm sorry, verse 17. 
This Jesus, when he comes, his winnowing fork is in his hand to clear the threshing floor, to gather all the wheat into his barn, but the chaff he will burn with unclenchable fire. And so, so the separation's coming, the judgment is coming. It will be a, a great and fearful thing. We, the people of God, delivered his enemies judged. Problem is, they come out thinking that they're on the good side of that equation when their lifestyle shows that they are not on the right side of that equation. They come out thinking, okay, because we're children of Abraham, we have the right lineage, our nation is the people of God, we're good, right? And so this guy says you got to be baptized. Uh, Evidently that's got something to do. Let's go get baptized, then we're good. When he comes, we'll be ready. And John's eye-opening message to them is, no, brothers and sisters, you're not ready. So if we had to summarize John's message, there's so much in it, hard to summarize, but here's the point from the whole story. It's that religious symbols and the family you come from can't save you from judgment. Only turning to Jesus in faith can save you from judgment. So we're going to spend the whole morning just walking through that, unpacking as many details as we can from what John gives us Uh, Let's go slowly through the story then. In verses 1 and 2, you get the stuff that makes history nerds happy and everybody else just skips over, right? All the details about who was ruling when and what was going on when. There is a point to that. Uh, Luke's whole point, the, the whole book is, hey, I went and looked this stuff up. I did the research and this stuff really happened. So you can have certainty in the teachings of, of Christian preaching and of the apostles preaching. When you hear that Jesus died to pay for sins and he rose from the dead, that's not a fairy tale. He says, I went and did the research. It really happened. So you can have confidence this morning that what you hear is based on history, things that really happened. He's demonstrating that here by showing his research. This, this isn't something I made up. This isn't lore. This happened when this guy was ruling here and this guy was ruling here. When these guys were the high priest at a particular point in real history, these things really happened. Let that buttress your faith in what you hear this morning. In verse 3, we get a summary of John's main message, what he is doing. And he's proclaiming, it says, a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. So anyone who would turn back to God and receive forgiveness, come get baptized as as a sign of that. It's baptism of repentance. So the logic already is that the baptism is an outward sign of what you're doing on the inside. You're repenting of sin, you're receiving forgiveness on the inside. You want to show that outwardly, come be baptized and tell everybody that's what's going on. This sounds a lot like the great prophet predicted by Isaiah who would come, a lot like what John's father, Zechariah, said he was going to do, call the people back to him in the spirit and power of Elijah. And so Luke confirms that then by quoting the old prophets, even here, the voice of one crying in the wilderness. He's the one that Isaiah was talking about, the one crying to prepare the way for the Lord, who says, the Lord is coming, but your way is crooked, Israel. Straighten out your way. You're not going to be able to receive him. The Lord is coming, but these lofty mountains of pride in your heart need to be made low and humbled. Otherwise, it's going to be in his way, and you're not going to receive him when he comes. Israel, be ready. You're not ready, Israel. Be ready. 
so assumed in his message already is that they're not in the right place. If they're going to receive the Lord when he comes, they're going to have to turn back to the Lord. That's important. So the people then are coming thinking they're in the right place, but his message already assumes they're in the wrong place, right? If you call someone to prepare for the Lord's coming, that means they're not ready for the Lord's coming, right? If you're having a house guest and you need to prepare the house for the guest, that means the house is not ready yet for the guest. It's, it's implicit in that. And so him telling them to prepare the way for the Lord, they're not ready. They're not on the right side. Him telling them they're, they're going to have to, to turn. They're going to have to repent and be forgiven. That should be enough to tell them you're, you're not on the right side. You need to turn. You need to come back. But they go out thinking that they're good because they're children of Abraham and all they need to do now is be baptized. That's what we see in verses 7 to 9. He confronts them first with strong words. Just once I want to open a sermon with, you brood of vipers. Man, mm, preach it, John. Strong words to people who come thinking they're on the right side, right? Why is he calling them a brood of vipers? Well, he says later, hey, hey, I know what you're thinking. You're about to say to yourselves, we're children of Abraham, right? We're good. We're on the right side of this. He's saying, you're not children of Abraham. You're children of the serpent, right? Uh, uh, not, not, they're not vipers. They're a brood of vipers, the babies of the vipers. Who's the great serpent in Scripture? Satan, right? He says, y'all are on the wrong team, right? You, you think you're coming as children of Abraham. You're coming as sons of Satan, and you need to know that. You're not ready. Let's get you ready for his coming. Now, the reason he can say this, he says, your life is showing that you're on the wrong side, right? He says, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. He says, the Lord knows you haven't repented, and you should know you haven't repented of your sins. Otherwise, you wouldn't be walking in so many of them anymore, right? You'd be walking differently. So he says, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. So they think then that being baptized and coming from the right family line is going to save them from the coming judgment. And he says, no, you're not, you're not ready. Let's get you ready. So the point so far then for us is if you think that a sign like baptism will get you ready for judgment, or if you think that having been raised in a Christian home or having a really righteous grandmother or really righteous parents will have you ready for the judgment, you're not ready for the judgment. And what's more, your lifestyle is proving to you that you're not ready for the judgment. So let's unpack that a little bit. There's much meaning there for us. He is giving this as a warning to those who trust in false assurances or presume that they are saved and prepared for judgment. He wants them to know, and if that is you, I want you to know that you are standing firmly and confidently on a trap door that is one day going to open below you. To stand confidently before God and say, I am ready for the judgment. When he comes back, I can't wait. I'm ready when your faith, your confidence is in an outward sign or is in coming from the right family 
And both of those are powerless to change you and powerless to save you. This matters a lot for a town like ours. Uh, anytime the gospel takes root in an area and in a Christian-like culture begins to develop and when I got here, I, I read a stat that there were 98 gospel preaching churches in Greenwood alone, right? The gospel preached everywhere. With it will come several imposter forms of Christianity, several false assurances, right? And this is why you can meet people right here in our hometown who will say, oh, I know I'm saved. I raised my hand at an altar call, like putting their faith in the action of raising a hand at an altar call. Or, I know I'm saved. When I was eight, I got baptized. It was great. They painted it up red like a fire truck. I had a great time, right? I know I'm saved because I got baptized. Or, I know I'm saved. Have you met my grandmother? We come from a good family of, of good people. When I talk to people in Greenwood about the gospel, which I wish I did more, I don't know that I've ever met someone who denied that God existed or who denied that judgment is real and hell is a real place. People I've talked to say, yeah, hell's a real place. But I also don't know that I've met anyone in Greenwood who at least said that they thought they were going there. The, The problem here is not belief in God generally, and it's not belief in a coming judgment problem is that none of us are worried about what's going to happen to us when we face it. Now, many people in Greenwood believe in the gospel, and that's good news, but the whole place doesn't, not as many as have confidence. And so the Lord would confront here that presumption that says, I did the thing. I raised my hand. I got baptized. I had the sign and seal. My parents had me christened when I was little. My parents had me sprinkled when I was little. Uh, I, I did a protection spell over a cauldron that somebody taught me on TikTok, right? So I'm good before God, and I'm ready. Some of y'all were like, what? That's real. People are really doing that. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's true. The Lord says, you're not ready. But let's get you ready. Now, if that's you, if that's convicting you, and you're thinking, oh, goodness, like I, up to this day, I thought I was saved because I got baptized. Up to the, I thought I was saved because of whatever, anything you did, anybody that you come from. And the Lord's convicting you of that. Uh, I'll leave it right now at that's not enough, but we will get you ready, okay? I need to talk to some other people first and preach to them first. We will come back to you, get you ready for the judgment by the time this thing is done. I need to talk to some others of you first because a lot of us here, uh, we know someone who is like this, right? I wonder if every Christian in the room has a loved one Uh, who maybe we saw them get baptized, we saw them answer an altar call or come down forward, uh, but their life today tells a very different story, right? And and, and I know it's true for me. I have loved ones like that. Many of you have told me it's true for you. I wonder if every every last one of us has a loved one in, in that very place. And this will introduce some tension here. There's some tension already there because what we saw them do and what we heard them say tells a very different story from their life today. They didn't bear fruit in keeping with repentance. So they've got the outward sign, but they're not showing evidence of an inward change. And so we have to ask, Lord, what is 
What is going on there? And the, the message of John here should put a zeal in our hearts to bring the gospel to those loved ones. If they are living like unbelievers, living like their baptism was powerless to change, living like whatever sign they did was powerless to change, they're demonstrating that there was not repentance and faith in their heart. Now, that is not the answer we wanted to hear about them. Well, that's not what I want to think about, about my loved ones. Yet the Lord uses it. May the Lord use it in my heart to give me zeal to bring the gospel to them. May the Lord use it in your heart to give you zeal to bring the gospel to them. Would they, in a year and in five years, be so tired of you telling them the gospel every time you see them, or better yet, have come back into the kingdom and see that they need to turn and receive Jesus Christ? Part of John's message here is that if you're placing your trust in these false assurances, religious signs like baptism, family heritage, your life will show, it will verify for you that you're not a believer. This happens to many people I know in the Catholic Church. Uh, the, The Catholic Church teaches that when you baptize a baby, God is making its heart new, so its heart's regenerated now, and now it's going to grow up, and it's going to have faith in God, and it's going to receive the good news of Jesus because you did the outward sign. They're saying it's, it's powerful to change, the sign is. And yet, have you met, like I have, so many people who have had that sign performed on them, they were christened or baptized as a baby, and they will say today, yeah, but I don't really go anymore, like it's not really a part of my life anymore. Right, so that, that departure then and that lifestyle that's slipping further into immorality is verifying that that sign was powerless to change and powerless to save because signs and symbols can't do that. Right? Only, only the Spirit's work in the heart and the gospel of Jesus Christ can do that. So this is how we have to examine our lives then. How can I tell if I'm putting my faith in my baptism or in my lineage or in my raising of my hand or the fact that I came or didn't come down an aisle, how can I tell that? And the Lord's answer is look at your life. Your life will give you the answer. Has your heart changed to the point that you're bearing fruit in keeping with repentance? Has he given you an increasing love for his people? Has he given you an increasing love for him? An increasing desire for him to come back so you can be with him forever? Has he given you an increasing hatred for the sins of your past? Do you look back and not wallow about yourself, but say, oh, I hate that I did that more and more with each passing day. Does that give you more zeal to walk in holiness today? These are the kind of fruits in keeping with repentance. And if the Lord's working those in your life, he's doing it as a sign to say, that was a real work I did. I brought you to faith in Jesus Christ that day. If those things aren't there, and I know it's a mixture for many of us, but if just by and large, they just throw them off the table, they're not there. The Lord is using that as a sign to say, you're putting your faith in something else. What are you putting your faith in? Is it your baptism? Is it your lineage? What is it? And so, the first part of John's message then, through the book of Luke, is if you think that a sign like baptism, or coming down the aisle and answering an altar call, or being christened, or if you think that your family line and the righteousness of the people around you 
is enough to save you from the coming judgment. It's not. And your lifestyle already shows the proof of that. So, if those things can't save you, what can save you? Well, that's the second half of John's message. Second half of his message is essentially that you can prepare for the coming judgment. You can be ready for what happens when Jesus returns. Now, this is about his first coming. I'm talking about his second coming. You can be ready by turning to faith in Jesus Christ. Or as how many in the scriptures would say, repenting and believing the gospel. It is very hard to parse those two out because repentance and faith are so similar that there's a lot of overlap in the Venn diagram, but they're not exactly the same thing. Faith in Jesus is something that you turn to. And so sometimes the scriptures say, repent and be saved. And sometimes they say, we're saved by faith alone. And sometimes they say, repent and believe the gospel. And so what's going on? Well, to have faith in Jesus is to turn from unbelief to belief. And so essentially, you can't do one without the other. You can't start having faith without turning from your unbelief. You can't turn to him as your greatest treasure without turning from self-love and sin as your greatest treasure. So there is a turning that happens as we come to faith. And so it is often said, repent and believe the gospel. In other words, we must turn from other things to turn to Jesus. And that is what we are called to do. First, this is shown in verses 10 through 13 by the people's sudden willingness to obey. So he says to them, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. So they hadn't been doing that. And now they're coming forward to be baptized. We know that from verse 12 because the tax collectors come to be baptized. So they know this is a baptism of repentance now. They're coming forward to say, I repent. And their big question is, okay, what do I do now? You can hear in that a, a blank check, right? They're all just like, what does the Lord want me to do? Tax collectors come forward. What about us? What do, what do we need to do? Uh, soldiers, Roman soldiers come forward. What about us? We, what, what do we need to do? And what you can see happening here is they're turning from their desires to I am back under his lordship. I'm back under the lordship of my God and of Jesus. And so they look up to him and through his messenger, the prophet, and say, okay, what, what's he want us to do? So we see there two very important things. It teaches us a little bit of what repentance looks like. We see that one part of repentance is willingness to obey the Lord fully and completely. And we also see that we're called especially to turn from the types of sins that people like us tend to do. John is no stranger to calling out particular groups of people and saying, this group tends to do this, so you guys don't do that. We would call that stereotyping today. We get a little nervous about doing that today. He's not afraid of that. So he's like, tax collectors, stop being corrupt. Soldiers, stop extorting people, right? He's just willing to do that. This happens also when we come to Jesus. We look, okay, what did people like me do and what do I need to turn from? It's a pretty good, good eye for what I was doing because I was one of those people. So to kind of parse those two out a little more, part of coming to Jesus in repentance is willingness to obey him immediately. We come asking, Lord, what do I do? And there's a, there's a blank check. 
That answers some questions that people have when they're coming in. Maybe you're coming into the kingdom and you have these questions. Some people will ask, am I going to have to give up blank, like whatever? Am I going to have to stop living with my girlfriend? Uh, I live an actively gay lifestyle. Am I going to have to stop doing that? Am I going to have to uh, give up my money? I love my money and I have a lot. Do I have to give it up if I come in? Like, and in one way, it's good that you're asking this because Jesus says, count the cost before you come in. You know what it's going to be like before you come in. One thing that we're seeing here, though, is if what God is working in your heart is true repentance, there aren't going to be any deal breakers. You're going to be asking a question like that, saying in your heart, will I need to give this up? Because I'm ready to do that if he calls that from me. You can see that in the, in the open eyes and the blank check of those people question, what, what do we need to do, Lord? What do I need to do? So coming willing to change, even if you're asking about particular things, question to ask is, am I willing to give that thing up if he calls me? He calls us to give up some things and not other things. If you have particular questions, be glad to answer them one day. But, but if he were to call it from you, would you be willing to give it up? There's the heart we're seeing in these newly converted people right here before John. The other nuance we see is that we're called especially to turn from sins that people like us often commit. And again, John has no fear of saying, people like this tend to do this sin. Don't do that if you're one of those people. He's just willing to do that and call entire groups out. And this is because there is not a group of people that are beyond the reach of the gospel. Uh, so many people in certain camps, uh, adult film stars, think that they cannot turn and come back to Jesus but if they think that, they're wrong. They can come. They can come back to Jesus. People in the homosexual community very often are aware that their lifestyle is sinful before God, but think they have gone too far and they can't come back to him. And the Lord says, no, nobody's beyond my reach. If you'll come back to me, my arms are wide open to you. And this is shown when people come from those communities to him and they ask, Lord, what, what do I need to do? So someone from the homosexual community will come to him. Many have done this and said, Lord, what do I do? And he says, don't obey the desires. Don't celebrate the desires. Don't identify with the desires. Obey me. Celebrate me. Identify with me. Uh, to just pick another group randomly, hip-hop artists have come to Jesus Christ and said, okay, Lord, what do I do? And he says, clean up the language. Speak of women in a way that cherishes them. And don't tell us how great you are. Tell us how great Jesus is. And you know what they do? They do it. They follow him. You can hear their stuff on Spotify and on Apple Music. It's an incredible thing. For us, you know, suburbanites here in Greenwood, we come to him and we say, Lord, what do we do? And he says, don't fall into the sins that suburban people fall into. He says, don't make leisure and fun your God. Keep the Lord's day sacred. He says, stop living for yourself and success. Live for me and live in love for others. So whatever kind of person you are, if you're young, if you're old, if you're in this group, you're in this profession, what do the people like you tend to fall into? What sins do they tend to fall into? 
have an eye for that and know the Lord is calling me to set myself apart from these sorts of people with my holy conduct. You might still be friends with him. You might still be working in that industry, but let your holiness set you apart as these soldiers and these tax collectors would go back to their work, but do it in a holy way. Part of repentance is turning especially from the sins that people like you tend to fall into. Before I move on, I do need to answer one more question because along with the question of will I have to give up this, some of us will come to Jesus and ask, wait, do I have to clean up before I come to him? Like, does he want me to get my life straightened out and then come to him? Some of you are already shaking your heads. Good for you. No, you do not have to clean up before you come to him. But you must come willing to clean up because that's how these people come, right? They come corrupt. They come rotten. They just got called a brood of vipers, and they come to him in that state. But they're willing to say, Lord, Lord, what do we do? So come messy, come dirty, but come willing and ready to clean up. All right, let's move on to the next paragraph. So in verses 15 to 17, they start getting excited. And they're like, okay, I think this one might be the Messiah. Do you think he's the Messiah? I don't know. Maybe he's got the spirit and power of Elijah. Maybe he is. And so he just stands up and he says, nope, but he's coming. He's almost here. And when he comes, guys, I'm not even worthy to tie his shoes for him. Like, oh, just, just wait until he comes. So he takes their hearts and he points their hearts to Jesus. And this is something else we see about true repentance, true conversion. Yeah, we're turning from sin. We're turning from presumption based on religious signs and things, but what are we turning to? Well, the real question is, who are we turning to? We're turning to a person. We're turning to Jesus Christ and the good news of his gospel. It may be hard to sense in the words there, but he is calling them to believe in the gospel. And it actually says in the first sentence of the next paragraph, with these and many other things, he preached good news. That's gospel. He preached the gospel to them. He was calling them to believe the gospel. And it can say that because at this point in history, the full mystery of the gospel hadn't been revealed to mankind. They didn't know that he was going to die for sins and rise from the dead. And at every point in history, the Lord has called people to believe however much of the good news he has promised to mankind. He revealed it slowly over time. So for Adam and Eve to believe the gospel was to believe God's promise that one day we'll have a descendant that will fix all this and crush that serpent. That was all the gospel had been promised. And so they believed it, they were saved. After Abraham, it was promised that this this one would come from the line of Abraham. So those that believed said, okay, a son of Abraham is coming, and he's going to save us. That was the gospel, then. So they believed it. Inasmuch as it was revealed to mankind, he called all mankind to faith in it. And so in this moment of history, they know all of that, and they know he's almost here. This is going to be incredible when he's here. So they're called to believe that the Messiah is coming and he's almost here and they need to be ready and they need to turn back to him. That was faith in the gospel for them. But we know more, don't we? He's revealed more to us. Praise God. We know his name. It's Jesus Christ. So we're called to believe in that name, Jesus Christ. We know how he saved us. His death pays for sins. And he rose from the dead to guarantee eternal life. 
So we're called to believe in that. So, so what's analogous to us then? He's calling them to wait eagerly for that Messiah who is coming. The Spirit calls us then, put your faith in the finished work of that Messiah who did come, who did die for sins, who did rise to guarantee eternal life. There's what you're turning to. The one who did all the things for you and accomplished your salvation for you. And so that's what I call everyone to. Don't just turn from the sign over to some other thing. Don't just turn from faith in baptism or faith in answering the altar call or faith in my lineage or my righteous parents. Don't just turn from sin, but turn to the good news of Jesus Christ. Put all your faith and confidence in the fact that he has died to pay for sins. This is why we sang the song we sang earlier. I need no other argument, right? I need no other plea. It's enough that Jesus died and that he died for me. Amen. All right, before we go, I know we ended on a good positive note. I got to give you a warning in the end, okay? Here's another warning. So what happens next involves Herod, who is the king. Herod hears this message as well. And he's a wicked man. He's Like all of the rest of John's heroes, he's done some wicked things. Uh, one of them was that he took his brother's wife, and now he's married to his brother's wife. So just a very twisted, wicked thing. And John calls him out explicitly for that. And then he calls him out for several of the other wicked things that he does. And we get to read then here Herod's response to that. How does he respond to being called to repent of his sin? He doesn't just say, no thanks. He locks John up in prison. And that's a warning to us who would resist the call to turn to Jesus. It's never a polite no thanks forever. The human heart doesn't work that way. In fact, usually when we're called to turn and come to the gospel, if we don't receive it, we leave offended because we were called sinners. I wonder if you're offended that I insinuated earlier that a boyfriend and girlfriend shouldn't live together. I wonder if you're offended that I said pretty explicitly earlier that God calls active homosexuals to leave the lifestyle. Or I wonder if me confronting one sin or another sin just sat in your heart as bitter and angry and you're walking away saying, I just, I like preaching, but I can't stand when preachers say things like that. Friend, that's a beginning of a root that will bloom into the hatred of Herod. This is how powerful people wind up locking up gospel preachers. They say, my sin was confronted and I didn't like it. So I just want you to know if you're walking out resisting the call to repent, it won't stay polite like that forever. Uh, No, that will grow and grow and grow. And I won't be surprised if one day you hate our church, if one day you hate me for what I proclaim, and even hate your own family members who proclaimed that. So I call you one last time. Do not resist the Spirit's work in your heart, but turn from sin, look to Jesus, and receive forgiveness.